issued. It's uh, I always like coming to Borderlands. I've been coming here for a long time, maybe 20 years. Uh, yeah, so tonight I'm going to talk about my novel, The Big Aha, and about an, an art show that I put up here. And a lot of the paintings have some connection with the novel. So as Jude said, I think uh, I'll talk a little bit about the book, read some of it, and then uh, maybe you can ask some questions, and then I'll also go up to the other end of this room and, and discuss some of the pictures with you. Um, my idea in writing The Big Aha, basically, I felt like the 60s didn't last long enough. I mean, the psychedelic era, I mean, I was just barely finding out about it, and then suddenly it was disco time, you know, it was, it was all over. And uh, so I thought it'd be nice to bring back that era in a science fictional context. Uh, I mean, you don't always want to write about dystopias and police states. <laughs> It's, I thought I'd write about something fun. So I wanted to write about some crazy people who find a new way to get high. And uh, the thing is, I didn't want it to be drugs because, uh, well, you know, everybody has opinions about drugs. We're sort of familiar with that. In science fiction, you want something new that sort of wakes you up and makes you think about alternate experience in a new way. And so what I, I fell on there was quantum mechanics, actually which, uh, not that I know that much about quantum mechanics, in, in science fiction, you don't necessarily have to have a, a fully rational explanation, but you need some good buzzword that sort of acts like an explanation. So in here, the thing they're going to be using is quantum wetware, which is called QWET for short, Q-W-E-T. And the people that use it are called QWETIs. And uh, how does it make them high? Well, <laughs> this is a, it relates to an idea I actually got from a friend of mine called Nick Herbert, who's a, he's actually a legitimate physicist and a, a bit of a crackpot, fascinating guy, lives in Boulder Creek. If any of you read my novel, Saucer Wisdom, it came out around the millennium, uh, Nick Herbert was in some sense a model for my character, Frank Shook in there, who's uh, frequently abducted by UFOs. And Nick has this theory, he says, look, in quantum mechanics, they talk about there's these two ways that the world can vary. There's a smooth, long-like, law-like, continuous change in the world. And then when you go and observe something, it does this sort of what they call a quantum collapse, and it becomes one thing or the other. The famous Schrodinger's cat is you leave something alone, and you don't really know what state it's in, and then... Formally, it's maybe in a mixed state, but then you go and look at it, you open the, the Christmas present, and you see what's in there. Now, he also speculated that your mind has these kinds of activities, and that seems to me quite true. And, and to me, I seem like there's two modes of consciousness that I have. And one is where I'm kind of merged in with my surroundings, uh, kind of part of the, the, the space around me, and not necessarily having any opinions or any, anything that I want, just being blended in with my surroundings. And that, I would call that the cosmic mode, or the sort of one with reality kind of mode. Now, you can't, as a practical matter, you can't stay in that mode, uh, so you, you, can, you snap back out of it, 
And then you look around, you say, well, who are these people with me? Uh, where do I have to be? You know, am I safe? Do I have enough to eat? Do I have a place to live? And there's all this sort of, a friend in grad school called them, you know, meaningless, uptight social games, like uh, having a place to live, eating, breathing, you know, all this, this stuff. So this is like the robot, robotic mode. And so there's the cosmic mode and the robotic mode. And my theory is that it's more like radar, and I think you oscillate between these two modes uh, maybe two or three times a second. Like you're continually forgetting yourself, relaxing, merging into your surroundings, and snapping back. So it's kind of cosmic robotic, cosmic robotic. So I'm going to try that together. Cosmic robotic, cosmic robotic. So, uh, so in this novel, what I wanted the characters to do was to find this quantum wetware treatment that could find this site in your brain where there's actually a switch in there. They could just grab hold of the switch and just shove it on over into cosmic mode. And they're like tripped out, you know, they're having a great time. You know, their lives are falling apart, but they don't notice yet. Then they snap back. Of course, you could wedge it the other way and be 100% robotic all the time, which our leaders would like us to do. <laughs> but disappointingly, we tend not to do that, and nobody wants to. So, um, one of the side benefits of being in cosmic mode is that then you get telepathy. And because uh, you're merged into the universal wave function, so, you know, it might as well be telepathy. Now, there's a catch. Again, I got this from Nick Herbert. It turns out there's this thing that you can't send information faster than light. And that seems to be a pretty solid, pretty solid law of nature. And if you could truly do telepathy with somebody and send information that way, you might be sending information faster than light. And so it turns out you can do telepathy, but then you can't remember anything about the conversation. <laughs> That's the way you get out of it. And that's called an oblivious link with somebody. So uh, I'm going to read you a passage that, uh, where my character is getting quit and having this kind of experience. And uh, then we can talk about it a little bit more. Uh, so my main character is called, uh, yeah, he's called Zad. Yeah. And, uh, He's a painter, actually, which kind of fits. Um, he uses a special kind of paint that's alive. Um, another thing in this book, they've gotten heavily into biotech. So, uh, let me tell you about the live paint first, and then I'll tell you about the telepathy. Okay. So he's working with his father. Dad and I got along pretty well, but our paths diverged when United Mutations started selling nerve paint. So nerve is the way for word for biotech tweak things. It was a variant of their nerve gel, which was a generic, highly tweakable slime mold with a web interface and a language parser <coughs> built into the cell colony, like with any other nerve. If you wanted to design a nerve from scratch, you could start with a big slug of nerve gel. Now the nerve paint had colors in its cells, and the stuff understood a vocabulary of a few hundred words what you might call an art programming language. Once you'd slathered your nerve paint onto a wall, the stuff's brightness and hue was adjustable from spot to spot. 
You can form stripes, polka dots, nested scrolls, branching filigrees, or if you were into sampling, you could feed it a web copy of some particular image that you like. Given that the nerve paint layer was several millimeters thick, you also had the option of coaxing it to wrinkle up and form embossed patterns. You could talk to the paint aloud or via the web, and you could push it around with a brush or with a gently tingling electric probe. Quickly, I mastered the craft of making pictures with nerve paint. I sensed that this new medium would be richly expressive. In a few days, I was painting vibrant imaginary landscapes bedecked with thorns, elephant trucks, and the puckered faces of little people. I murmured steadily to my paints while I worked. Finally, I had a large finished piece that I really liked. This was in the month of March, three years after I finished high school. Dad was dubious about nerve paint. Dad is a, a traditional artist. He paints people's houses and their horses and their dogs. Dad, and this is in Louisville, Kentucky. Dad was dubious about nerve paint, and when I told him he should switch to it too, he exploded. I want that creepy, crawly crap out of my studio, he yelled, his long, fuddy-dud hair flying from side to side. It's slimy bullshit. Use the good old ways I taught you, Zad. Go back to oil paint. That'll be a cold day in hell, I said. In silence, I, I began packing up the easel, the brushes, and the canvases that I'd bummed off Dad, also my stash of nerve paint. Just then, one of Dad's clients happened to meander in, Todd Trask, a social butterfly who owned a derby-winning thoroughbred. He lived as a bachelor in the exquisitely outfitted mansion on his family farm overlooking the Ohio River. By now, Todd's parents were dead. The mansion was separated from our house by a mile of woods. Todd Trask was between my parents and me in age. He had an amusingly campy accent. The man was a fop, a dandy, a knob. I've got my portrait of your friend Jason all set, Dad told him. Yes, yes, said Todd, ignoring Dad to focus on me and my new painting. The Hale Apprentice in Master Lennox's workshop. Greetings, Zad. This exalted blare of shape and color is from your brush? Hmm, nerve paint. Most excellent. Todd leaned in close to my large canvas. The man smelled of lavender and country ham. <laughs> Louisville. <laughs> one, might fear, one might fear a cheap, generic effect, but you've made it elegant. Polyrhythms, chaoticity, gnarl, very of the moment. I see a nightmare horse, a crowd in motion, and how sardonic, how sardonic, fat snails on the track. Une belle bizarrerie. What do you call your, your monster, he said? Cold day in hell, I said, <laughs> giving Dad a cocky grin. That's the title I'm using for this series. Each painting is a subtitle, too. Knowing Trask's interests, I came up with a good fit. Cold day in hell, derby day winner's circle. I shall have it, cried my mark. <laughs> Name your price. So that's, uh, that's the future of painting. Which it was fun to have a painter in my book. Uh, anyway, I want to jump and read another passage. Or, uh, well, let's just pause for a minute. Does anybody have any thoughts about futuristic painting? Yeah. 
it occurs to me that once you have a completed nerd painting, yeah. you should be able to get it to upload the code to the web so that other people with blank canvases could duplicate it. Like you could sell prints that way. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. The thing is, this stuff is, it's not so much like a digital output. It's actually slime that's alive. Sure. So it doesn't necessarily have a, a precise code. I mean, you told it to do something, you pushed it around. And that's, really, that's the appealing thing for somebody like me to, that's why I like painting, because it's, it's not like a keyboard, you know. The stuff is still alive, though, and it could fuck up and change what it looks like. <laughs> and, or it could crawl off. That's something that Todd Translator's worried about, that it's going to crawl off the canvases and go down the hall and, and bother people. <laughs> but, uh, would graffiti yeah. artists be considered a threat? How would their response be? Would the artist be considered a threat? Graffiti artist. So you got, oh, a, you got a nerve on a wall, then some comes with a spray can and wanted to attack. Well, maybe if somebody tried to mess it up, the, the painting would get him. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the nerve have its own agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, become a virus and infect yeah. everything so that everything turns into a replica of its image. Well, that's, that could happen too. In this book, the, the nerves are fairly, they're not really the, the center of any crisis in the book. They're more like a background thing. It's just, I've always had the idea that I think machines will go away. I think we will start, I think everything we have will be biotech within 100 years, 200 years. I mean, uh, anything else right now? Well, let me press on. I'll say a little. Bit. I want to read a little bit about the telepathy stuff. But I thought I should read this stuff about painting since this is uh, I'm doing a painting show. Okay. So then he goes to a picnic. It's actually a Todd Trask's farm. Although Todd is dead now. He uh, <laughs> never mind about Todd. <laughs> oh, he got involved with sex nerves. These are like love dolls, but you know these giant gouts of slime that are shaped like people. But you can get some seriously bad diseases from them. So, anyway, so uh, Zad goes to this picnic, and his wife has left him, and he's taken up with this woman called Lulu. Lulu and I were out the driveway and heading for River Road. He has a giant. Uh, he has a. His car is a copy of the Lincoln Continental in which JFK was assassinated. You know the. The really, but instead of tires, it has slug feet. You know, it's, it's just like a giant mucus slug on the bottom. It's thanks to having a nerve. So, anyway, now they are out the driveway and heading for River Road. That's a famous road in Louisville. It goes along the Ohio. We rode in silence for ten minutes, letting the night air beat against our faces, each of us gathering our thoughts. It was a September evening with a low chunk of moon, the air hot, moist, and luscious, boding a night of mystery and promise. I was picking up a musky scent from Lulu, and with it came little pings from her personality. I had the feeling Lulu was quet, like Carlo had said. Pull into the next road on the left, she said in her husky voice. That clearing behind the old Ballard School, nobody will bother us. She nodded, emphasizing her plan. 
Sink beyond sink. The Ballard Bower was exactly where I'd gone with Jane on the night I'd been thinking about when I first left that farm in a car with a woman. The first place where Jane and I had had sex. As soon as we stopped, Lulu started kissing and rubbing on me. Five minutes later, we were naked and making love in the back seat of my car. Romantic to be doing it outdoors, behind the Ballard School, a return to the glories of youth. On the hood of my car, our two quet rat helpers danced in celebratory glee, savoring our rich sensations. Because you can make an animal quet, and then it's smart and telepathic. After sex, Lulu and I lay on the smooth old leather of my car seat, looking up at the sky, Lulu nestled nude on my chest. I felt very close to her and to the world around us, close like never before. It was more than Lulu pinging me now. I was blending with her thoughts right inside her skin. I was feeling the minds of our quet rats, and in some indefinable way, I was feeling the shapes of the gently swaying trees and the scuttling of the insects in the rotting leaves on the ground, everything loose and impressionistic, like the hues and nerve paint before you tightened them up. All the walls were down. I see the eyes, I stammered, having trouble with my words. I see you. Please don't freak, whispered Lulu, her lips against my cheek. Please get used to it. You're teeping too? You've been that way all along, right? Telepathic? I caught it from Joey. They switched Joey over to quantum wetware last week, remember? So that he could merge his mind with your rats. And you made me quit just now by having sex? It's contagious if you're intimate. You might say that quet teep is a sexually transmitted disease. Lulu let out a warm two-note giggle higher on the second note. Teep is good, Zan. We'll use teep to merge our minds into one. A beautiful dream. Are you sorry for Joey, your husband? Sure I am, but Joey stopped making sense. Also, he hasn't washed for a week. You're my knight for now. Maybe we'll be right together. Relax into it, baby. Quet is like a magic power. Easy to relax, but a little scary. I didn't want to drown, didn't want to be a piece of dust in the cyclone of the minds. I was merged with Lulu and with our two quet rats, and now, as if sensing lights in the distance, I was feeling the minds of my friends, Carlo, Joey, Junko. All their little voices were in my head, blurred and unclear, kind of cozy. Lulu was right. I didn't have to fall apart. I could still be me. I was reaching into the other mind flows, tasting them, not remembering any real facts, but somehow changing my vibe. I fell back on the image of cruising the web, as if the other minds were websites I was browsing on multiple screens. The screens were in the flickering zone of my peripheral vision. Maybe I hadn't been wasting time cruising the web in my dream chair for the past few months. I'd been getting ready, ready for quest. I brought Lulu to the room behind my store and she spent the whole night with me. It was epic. I was with her in my dreams, like sleeping through a trans-real biopic movie. Let me pause here and say more about how quantum wetware leads to tea. It has to do with what you might call quantum psychology. If you ever take a serious look inside your own head, you'll notice that you have two styles of thought. We call them the robotic and the cosmic. Robotic thought is all about reasoning and analysis. Cosmic thoughts are wordless. It's easy to, be, easy to be dominated by your endlessly narrating inner robotic voice. Step past the voice and you can see the cosmic mode. Analog consciousness, like waves on a pond, merged with the world, without opinions. 
Ordinarily, your mind oscillates between the cosmic and the robotic at a rate of maybe 20 cycles per second. You need both modes. The cosmic state is emerged into your surroundings, and the robotic state is when you draw back and say, okay, it's me against the world, I'll plan what to do next to stay alive. Junko's technical discovery was that we have a specific physical brain site that controls when our state of consciousness flips between the cosmic and robotic. And Junko's quantum wetware allowed us to lean on our switch and keep our minds in the merged cosmic state for a long period of time. A loopy thing to do. Now for the payoff. It's the cosmic mode that leads to T. If you and someone near you are both in the cosmic state, then your quantum wave functions merge into a single combined wave system that gets gnarlier and more interesting the longer you maintain the merge. Your brain waves overlay each other like two sets of ripples, and that's T. Serious dark beauty, crude. I know I'm droning on for too long, like an old school professor tap, tap, tapping his chalk on a freaky, dusty blackboard. But I have one more tidbit to tell. According to quantum mechanics, whenever you make a mental note about what you're experiencing, you automatically bust your mind state down to the robotic mode. Your teeth connections break. To stay in the teeth state, you need to stay cosmic. Putting it another way, quet teeth is oblivious, as in unseeing, unaware, ignorant, forgetful. That means that when you teeth with someone, your memories of the trip will be as vague and flaky as last night's dreams. Zab! It was mid-morning, nearly ten. I didn't usually sleep this late. Lulu was up on one elbow, dark and beautiful, twirling a lock of my hair. She waved hello. It took me a minute to get my robotic mode going. An intense night, I grated. I know everything about you. That's what you think. By now, my randy cosmic wave function retreated into the shell of my skull, and everything about our big night was unclear. I... I forgot to remember, I said. Don't worry. You've integrated it all into your psyche. Stuff's going to drift up. Flotsam from the crystal ship. Jetsam on the shore. Postcards from the nth dimension. Lulu pursed her lips and studied me. Don't look so worried. You've got a new mind. Feel around. things like that that you think about for years and years and then you think you're going to explain it in 10 seconds. <laughs> but uh, I sort of explained it twice. Well, it comes across. Yeah, yeah. I intuited. Mm -hmm. I, I understood it while you were explaining. Now I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> it's oblivious too. <laughs> Language is a strange thing really, isn't it? That just by making grunts and squeals you hope to replicate your state of mind in somebody else. It's very odd that we even think it could work. But it does. Yeah, it does. You think it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Do you worry much about self-consistency and thinking about what you're writing in an area like this? 
Oh, yeah, I do. Because I, you know, I have, I'm sort of a scientist. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I was a math professor. So logic and, and consistency is important to me. So I put a lot of work when I'm writing a book into making it consistent. Actually, usually when I write a book like this, I write another book that's just as long. Uh, what was that? I went, it wasn't the camera. The paper. I wrote another book called Notes. Uh, ordinarily, I wouldn't publish a book like this because <laughs> I'm going to sell about 70 copies. But uh, you could be one of those people. Um, but the, the thing is, the way I produced this book, maybe I should say a little about that. I've been, you know, moving at the long tail. This is, I think, my 22nd science fiction novel. And I was with Tor Books for a long time. And then re recently they got to the point where, you know, it was, they weren't making enough, they weren't losing money on my books, but they weren't, you know, making the money they wanted. And then... Uh, it was getting harder and harder to get published. I went with Nightshade, and then they went bankrupt. And then, if I send it somewhere, I'd wait a year. And then I was like, well, it's time. You know, the tech, tech has changed, so I decided to start self-publishing. And first I did e-books, which is very easy to do. And then a print book is, uh, it's a whole level harder. And, uh, but it's doable. I learned how to do it. And then the missing part of the equation was that I didn't get an advance. Okay, so I can, I can publish books, I can get Lightning, Ingram to distribute the, the paperback, the hardback, but you know, nobody was paying me. And that's when Kickstarter came into the picture. And I did a Kickstarter for this book. Are any of my Kickstarter supporters here? Yay, all right. <laughs> and uh, these guys, uh, they gave me about what Tor Books, actually a little more than what Tor Books would give me. Actually, substantially more than what Tor Books would give me as an advance. So I was like, yeah, you know, this is good. So uh, I had about 350 supporters, and then, so I just finished mailing out, uh, I think, 85 paperbacks and 45 hardbacks. It's like, you know, when the public radio, PBS raises funds, you know, there's the levels. Uh, if you donate a smaller amount, you get the ebook. More, you get the paperback. More, you get the, the hardback with color illustrations. Because I can do these production things that you know a regular publisher would never dream of doing. Well, a it includes my paintings, which would never happen, <laughs> and b the paintings are in color, so it's it's nice. You know, you can make a really nice looking book. So that's that's the way I did this book, and uh, and then just in a moment of hubris, I the very top. Donators, I told them I'll give you a hardback of notes for the big aha, which was a huge amount of effort to produce like five copies of this book, you know. But it's, uh, I don't know. Anyway, so this is circling back to your question of is it consistent? You bet. <laughs> How about another question? Are you looking forward to a day when the nerves write your books for you? <laughs> well, no, I, I don't want to be OTOs. That's <laughs> uh, I think it would be hard to make a. That'd be like the last thing that an AI could do, write a good novel, because I put my entire personality into a novel, 
I mean, everything I know, everything I'm thinking about. And it's a, it's a very immersive process. The world starts reflecting my novel, things happen to me. I was thinking back, when I wrote Saucer Wisdom, there was a novel, it was, kind of, it was meant to be sort of a humorous novel about a guy who thinks he gets abducted by UFOs. But then more and more of these creepy alien things started happening, you know? Like, uh, remember Heaven's Gate and all those people? Well, that night, I I'd had an, a, a nightmare about the aliens getting me that same night. And then I woke up and that was in the newspaper. It was, uh, I mean, sometimes you feel like the world is dancing with you, but then sometimes when it starts slam dancing with you, it's <laughs> nuts. But it's... It's nice, though. I, I love I love writing. I love getting involved with reality at a deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think up ideas? Think it's not the right time. Put them somewhere and then later on for reconsideration. I do keep sort of a list somewhere of, of things that I think would be good story ideas, and then I think I'll do this. Uh, I'll do this eventually. And then, uh, I don't always get back to them. Sometimes, I mean, in a way, you can write a story just in a, a paragraph. You can describe the whole thing. That's where people imagine that somebody can steal their ideas, but it's really, the, the essence of the story is never just that twist. It's, the per, it's having the characters and the way they develop and then the side things that come up. But. Uh, so far, I've been pretty lucky. I, I, I tend to have a lot of ideas. One easy way to get science fiction ideas is always just to look at what you're seeing in the paper, or even better, what you're seeing for yourself. Because things the news media gives to you, they're, they're slanted according to somebody's agenda. But when you like notice people doing some activity that they didn't used to do, and then you say, well, what if I just turn the dial on that and have them do it that much more? You know. Or just the thing about people poking on buttons all day long in the street. That's, you know, and there's, you could amp that up and then in various ways you could take that. Yeah? Do you find that um, in the years since you've really been heavily into painting, that that's informed your writing? Because I yeah. imagine it would be the other way around usually. Well, it's, yeah, I started painting in 1990. I was writing a, a historical novel. It's the one non-science fiction novel that I wrote. It's about the life of the painter Peter Bruegel. Uh, and uh, I thought it would be fun to, to paint a little just so I could relate a little bit to what it was like. And then uh, my wife Sylvia and I took a, an art class at uh, the San Jose Museum. They had, you know, like a painting class. And then I started doing it and I, I liked it a lot. Actually, uh, the first painting I did of was, was of my dog with a UFO. And since then I've done a hundred paintings and I sell, on image kind you can go there and you can sell prints of your paintings. So naturally that's the painting that sold, the, the print that sold the most. You know? And I knew nothing about painting, but I put a dog in a UFO in it, so. <laughs> Case closed, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, by the way, uh, let me just mention passing. I do have brought some of my prints in tonight uh, on that table. If you're interested, you can you can buy one of them for um, I guess thirty-five dollars, and just pay that to me. This would be aside from the bookstore. Anyway, um, painting. 
I like it because, as I was mentioning earlier, I like it because it's non-digital. I like that a lot. And uh, also draws on, you know, the proverbial uh, right half of the brain. It's uh, not the, so much the logic of the brain. And I like when I start painting, I don't necessarily know where I'm going with it. I'll just, you know, smear it around and see what comes out. And I find it useful in my writing to pre-visualize something. And as I know I have to do a chapter and I have some vague idea of what ought to happen in there, but I don't really have any idea how to make it work. And then I'll do a painting, which in the end might not really be an exact match for what happens, but it helps get me off the dime. It helps me get me going. So that's useful. Also from painting, I've learned, uh, it made me feel more comfortable about revising in my book. You just, you know, you rub it out and you, you paint over it. Uh, also, uh, some things that, that you work on a lot, it's really hard to get right. One reason I got interesting with painting was hanging around with Paul Mavridis. I used to, I always admired his work with the Church of the Subgenius, and then when I moved here, I got to hang around with Paul, and I would go up to his apartment, which is not too far from here, and I would often read him what I'd been writing, you know, and then, well, he'd be painting, or, it was fun. At that point, Valencia Street was, didn't look like it looks now. <laughs> it was just gray, it was eternally twilight, and wintry, you know, grit, like Chicago or something. <laughs> just grit blowing up these crooked little coffee shops that, I don't know. But uh, in many ways, it's nicer now. Uh, but, uh, Anyway, but that was fun. So I like the idea of painting. I like a lot of things about it. Yeah? Uh, I just have a comment. Uh, I don't know if you've done this already, but you know, you could do a great children's book with your painting style and your ability to make a short story. You know, you I have thought of that. Um, I have a friend called Terry Bisson who wrote some sort of children's stories, so they're, they're a little bit sarcastic. But, and I actually did some paintings for him for that book. But uh, from time to time I've thought of the children's book, but um, it's a whole other market, and uh, I've already failed in so many markets. <laughs> Why enter a new one? So, uh, I don't know. Well, let me come back here and I'll tell you about the paintings. Come on. And then we can just hang out. By the way, there's some free pastries on the counter there if they aren't all eaten. So grab one. tour here, don't let us disturb you too much. So this, uh, this is actually one of the very first paintings I did 
that relates to uh, the big aha. And this painting is called Lulu and Skunji. And this was uh, this is based on a woman I saw on the street, and just uh, she looked very mysterious. And then I had uh, I wanted to have a I like the idea of rats, so I don't know why exactly. I put a guy's hand and he's holding up a rat. And then later, then I, when I started writing the book, at the very first scene, I had the guy uh, get an intelligent rat, a quit rat, that he could uh, talk to. So that's Lulu and Skunji. The rat's called Skunji because he's sort of disgusting. <laughs> now, uh, this has to do, I mentioned that night when uh, Zad spends the night with Lulu and they're in a telepathic union all night long. That's sort of a painting of that. That's, uh, that's Zad on the left looking kind of not very handsome. And that's Lulu, she's got sort of the Princess Leia hair. And those other things, I don't know what there are. But see, there's lots of little rats there. This is one where I just sort of started, I didn't know what I was doing. I just started doing alternating, kind of like a map of the world, the, the blues and the greens. And then I started putting the rats in, and then I put uh, Zad and Lulu in there. And that other thing's sort of like an ant. Notice the same two people are over here in this painting. That painting's called Louisville Artist. And so this book's set in Louisville. And again, this is sort of my self-image. You know, I'm sort of a sloppy person. But, uh, and then in the book, they live in these giant bamboo trees. They're called house trees. And so that was the first, first picture I did of the house trees. Now, um, another thing here that relates to the book is uh, there's these, see up there, there's these creatures. They're called, uh, I think they're called gubs. Yeah, they're called gubs. So, uh, yeah, gubs. So, uh, are, is it, are they called gubs? Yeah, I think they're called gubs. So, there's this idea, there's two parallel worlds in, uh, in the Big Aha. There's, there's our regular world that we live in, and there's this other world that's called Fairyland, although it's not really like Fairyland in the fairy tale sense, but there's these strange creatures that live there. And one of them is the spotted gub. And he's basically good. And that's the green gub. She's his wife. And they're basically good, too. Um, but there's, there's some bad stuff over in Fairyland that's trying to get us. And that drawing, if you happen to be a mathematical physicist, you'll recognize what that is. That's an Einstein-Rosen bridge. But most people wouldn't know that. That's like a wormhole. We think of there being two realities. One thing I don't really like the idea, people talk about alternate realities. I don't like the idea of there being infinitely many realities, because that's sort of boring, because then if everything exists, then nothing matters. So if I want to have multiple realities, I'd really just have two, you know, sort of like heaven and hell or good and bad. And so that's fairyland. Now the thing that's, that's making trouble for them is this thing that lives in fairyland, and he slides down through one of those wormholes and comes out at Churchill Downs racetrack and starts eating everybody there. And that's the creature there. He's called a muir, or M-Y-O-O-R. Yes. And the muir has mouths on it, and it has these, these eye stalks. Eye stalks are, in science fiction, you always want to have eye stalks. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's these, these creatures here. And that's, again, see the guy with the, the spiky hair? That's sort of the same as that guy, and it's also the same as that guy. All three of them are sort of my main character. He looks a little more Latino here. That's cool. And uh, he's, uh, 
He's made these things, he calls those things Mr. Normal, because he's gone beyond painting, he's doing sculpture now. He's using, getting big globs of nerve gel and sculpting stuff. I should mention, by the way, we have some sculpture here tonight too. They've got three over there, and these are by Vernon Head, a friend of mine, and that's another one there. These are very cool little contraptions. I, I like that lima bean thing. And uh, so this guy has made some, some nerves that are sort of like robots with light bulbs on their heads. And they're fighting the, the Muir back. Now, uh, there's another idea in the Big Aha, there being sort of two gods or two forces, like uh, the yin and the yang. And that's a picture of them up there. And what they're coming out of, that's that shape that you always see at the end of a Warner Brothers cartoon. You know, those, that's sort of a, a cosmic tunnel, you know, to the land of laughs. And these things are coming out of there. Now, let's see, what else about these? That's just me on my last birthday. That's not. <laughs> there are so many candles, my wife had to put out two a cake with candles and then strawberries with candles. And this is a, this is a recent one I did. This is the Frogman. It's sort of like a Monet style water there. And then I thought, what can I put on that? I had the, the background. I thought, what can I put on that? And then I had the idea of a, a frog. And then I put the circle of the ripples, and that makes it look kind of lifelike. Uh, that other one, that's just a reflection of me in my wife's mirror. It has that nice tunnel look. I always like the idea of tunnels to other worlds. So, oh yeah, this is flying jellyfish, okay, the woman with the flying jellyfish. That's a Picasso that I stole from the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> that was good painting that. It took me about two weeks. Uh, I learned so much about that painting. I'd always loved it, and going over it in such detail. And uh, that's sort of a, just a, a visualization of two alternate worlds. And so then there's just three more I would mention. That's these back here. So these are, that's an image of telepathy on the left. Uh, so they've got the thought balloon, and see their two faces are inside there. At first it's a little hard to make out, but their faces are merged like a yin and a yang. And I think that one's called Love. Okay. And then there's a guy looking at a, a weird fractal in the sky. I like that one a lot. And then there's a bunch of eyes. That's an easy painting to do. But uh, just getting the values right so it, it has a nice, even pastel quality to it. So that's all the paintings I wanted to tell you about. Uh, so we can, we can hang around. You know, Stay as long as you like. There's still one or two pastries you can grab there. If you get some books, I'll be glad to sign them. I'll go back up there. Thanks for showing up. We should put Vernon's things out of here. Of course.